Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So this week's message is entitled, Strengthen the Anchor Chain. And that sounds like a word salad a little bit, like, man, strengthen the anchor chain. There's a whole bunch of uh, things in there that we're going to kind of pick apart. But um, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a person who, if I don't regulate or watch or, or minimize the amount of any type of media that I put in, to, to my mind, to my heart, to my spirit, to my ears, my eyes, whatever it is, um, I wind up in a hole, like emotionally. I don't know if anybody else is like this. Maybe you guys are stronger than me, but um, and it's not just like the news, right? It's any type of media. It's, you know, watching these people do this and not do this. And these people turn their back on God. And these people talk about deconstructing their faith. And these people, you know, and, and realizing that they're, the longer and longer we go, I heard somebody put it this way <clears throat> this week. They said, um, if you're a Christian in America, you, are no, you no longer have home field advantage. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is exactly true. It's kind of what I'm feeling, right? So I have to regulate all of the, the stuff that I put in or I become discouraged. And so when I get to the point of discouragement, I turn all the stuff off, you know, I turn it off, I try to go pray and it's probably dominating my mind. I don't know if you're like that. If you've taken in so much, you go to pray, I can't get it off my mind, you know what I mean? And it's, it's just running, you know, through my head and taking up all my attention. And there's only one thing that can cure discouragement. Now, a lot of people try to try to deal with discouragement in different ways, right? Like they try to medicate, they try to self-medicate, they try to numb it up, they try to take an emotional approach, like they get angry or they come at it. Some people use discouragement as fuel, you know, like I'm going to go and use this as kind of a motivation to go you know, if I failed at something or something didn't work out the way I wanted it, I'm going to use that as fuel to kind of rush in and kind of really achieve the thing that I want. But in every one of those instances, in every single one of those instances, the discouragement remains. After whatever you did to numb it or forget it wears off, the moment has passed or whatever, the discouragement remains. Even if you're using discouragement as fuel to try to try to push you towards towards you know achievement, I'm going to use that as like motivation for myself. Its presence is still around. The discouragement remains. The only thing that cures discouragement, first on your notes, is hope. Hope. And that sounds really good, right? You can be like, oh, you just need some hope, and the Lord is your hope. Jesus is your hope. And, you know, you just, you just need some hope. This, there's hope for you. There's hope for tomorrow. There's hope for a better future. There's hope for the next time you try. But hope in and of itself fails. Because we have to specify what do we have hope in. I know that that's grammatically not correct. And if you're an English person, you saw that. It it was like nails on a chalkboard for me to write it on the paper. But it's the only way I could kind of effectively communicate it is what do you have hope in? What is our hope in? Even Proverbs talk about when we have hope that something will work out for us, 
it can let us down. Proverbs 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hoping that something will work out, that what we want we're going to get or something's going to iron out a certain way or an opportunity is going to come along or a door is going to be open for us. Hope in that aspect, if it doesn't happen, kind of leaves us disappointed. It leaves our heart sick. See, I grew up in the, in the South and I wish I would have asked this question to myself because there were three major things that were important in my life when I was younger. And I lived in Texas for a little while, for a couple of years, and it was the same thing here. There were three things that were important. Anybody know what they are? Anybody know what those three things are? Faith, family, and the last F is? Football, there you go. I don't know who said it, football. Faith, family, football. And depending on the day, the priority of those orders changed. Sometimes faith was down at the bottom because, you know, the your, your cowboys or whoever cowgirls were playing, you know, they, hey, sorry for all you cowboys fans. <laughs> it's like people just left the church. He's got up and walked right out. <laughs> um, the cowboys were playing, and so it didn't matter what time church was, you know, it was over. Like I, I, I watched online. No, you didn't, but okay. So, you know, in the, depending on what was going on and the culture and in your life, those things reprioritized. But I never stopped to ask, what, is, what do you have faith in? Because most people, when they hear that word faith, like, I'm a person of faith. Faith in what? I never asked that question, and I wish I would have because I realized that people got faith in a lot of things, just like they have hope in a lot of things. Some people are like, when you say, what, what do you have faith in? Well, I just have faith things are going to get better. I have hope that things are going to get better. I have hope that if I just keep doing the same thing, I'm going to eventually get a different result. I have hope that, oh, things will happen that are meant to be. I used to have faith in all of that. All of that faith, all of the hope in those things, the universe, the mysterious ether, the destiny of whatever is supposed to happen. If you have faith or hope in those things, you will be disappointed. Because having hope and having faith is not enough. What you have hope and faith in is the determining factor. Hebrews 6, 16 through 19. It talks about the hope that Christ brings, and it gives us a metaphor, an idea of what this hope really is. And this is the scripture that our message is going to be kind of built around here tonight. So I'll read it out loud. You can just follow along in your notes. Hebrews 6, 16 through 19. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could, perf could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to that hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the, cert, um, through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. 
I like how it specifies what kind of hope. But he says this hope, again, not in some ambiguous thing, not in the universe or the ether or the destiny or positivity. Hope in Christ. Hope that there's a future for us. Hope that there is a promise for us. Hope in Jesus is our anchor. Next line of your notes, hope alone is not our anchor. Hope in Jesus Christ is our anchor. Hope alone is not our anchor. Hope in Jesus Christ is our anchor. <clears throat> now, when I was reading this, I, th I thought of a, uh, what, what does an anchor look like? And so, Jules, if you can throw that picture up there. This is like an old school anchor up here on the screen, right? So when you think anchor, you think, you know, uh, for me, oh man, I'm old. I think Popeye and his tattoo on his arm. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't know who Popeye is, just Google him. He's on late night Nickelodeon, I'm sure. <clears throat> but, but um, you know, he has that, you know, uh, he eats spinach to be strong, you know. I won't sing the song for you. I almost did. See, I caught myself. I'm getting better at that. Um, but, you know, this is the anchor what I look at. When I think of an anchor, this is what I think of. That big rod in the middle and those two kind of sharp half, half crescent moon uh, pieces on the edge. And this anchor is actually, this old anchor is actually mildly ineffective. Because the point of the anchor is not just to be a heavy object that weighs something down. The point of the anchor is that it attaches to something, namely the ground in, a, in a, the perfect scenario. And if you have this kind of anchor anchored on your ship, on your boat, you are hoping that one of those hooks on the end catches something. You're hoping that it catches maybe a, a, a root that was way down deep in whatever lake you're in. You're hoping that it catches on a rock. You're, you're hoping that it catches on something else that can, be, that can make your boat be stable. By itself, it doesn't do the job. Um, hoping that your anchor connects to something else is a treacherous way to live if you're on the water <clears throat> but there's a new anchor this anchor is called the ultra anchor and it was designed um within probably the last within the last decade and it's got a uh, pretty pretty wild design doesn't have that one rod with these two hooks it actually has a different type of design and there's no, there's no audio for this video, but I'm going to have Jules still play the video for you so you can kind of see what the ultra anchor looks like. And I think this one is probably a better representation of, of what the anchor that we have would look like in this analogy for us. So go ahead. So here it is, and you'll notice the anchor will be on the front of my yacht. I mean, this yacht here. <laughs> yeah. Hallelujah. I'm believing. Um, but the anchor goes right off the front. You'll see the hook here. It'll zoom in. And this anchor, it sounds like I'm doing like an infomercial for this. I'm not. I'm just showing you how it works. So it just dumps off the end. And look, it's got like this weird spade design on the front of it. And it's connected by that hook to the chain. The top part of that handle is actually hollow. 
so that when it hits the ground, even if it goes sideways, it'll always rotate up and immediately dig in the ground. This is something that's very interesting as well is that it digs in very quickly. Only that, it only takes that long. And if it, if the ship that is anchored to it in, has a headwind that's pushing it back, look what the anchor does. It digs in deeper so it doesn't move. Even if the wind comes from a different angle, not just head on, but it swirls around and comes from the side and pushes it to the side, you would typically have to pull up an anchor and reset it, but not this one. It actually stays underground and digs further so that you don't have to pull it up. You don't have to get blown off course and come back. And to reset, all it does is pull the tip up out of the ground and brings it back to the boat. I've watched a bunch of guys this week. I feel like an expert on sailing. I am not, but I've watched so many videos and reviews and people who are sailors talk about the importance of the anchor and, and how to, to get it up and down. And people who had those old style anchors would have to literally cut them off if they couldn't unhook them from what they were connected to. They would have to leave them at the bottom of, they had to leave them at the bottom of the, um, at, of the lake or the ocean or wherever they were. They had to leave them there. And there are stories where people had dropped their anchor, and when they pull it up, they actually pull up an anchor that was left there. They actually pull up an extra one. This anchor more closely resembles the hope that we have in Christ and the analogy that we were given, because next line in your notes, the newer style ultra anchor digs deeper into the ground when the boat experiences more resistance. When the boat experiences more resistance, that's when it digs deeper. <clears throat> so as I read, as I read that, um, that passage in Hebrews and was going through my study, I thought, man, this is great. We need to be reminded that we have an anchor. It's that anchor is the hope of Jesus. And the analogy, we are the boat or we're on the boat. We're on the vessel. It's above the water. We're, we're going where the Lord would tell us to go. And there's moments when there's, we have to stop. We have to rest. We have to recalibrate. We have to find our direction. There's a storm coming for whatever reason. We have to stop and drop that anchor and lean on that hope that we have, the hope of salvation, but also the hope of there is a life and an eternity to come after this temporary life is over. This is not all there is. There is a life after you die for believers who goes into a place that works hand in hand with God in perfection and eternity. That is the hope. And I thought, man, this is great. And then as I was watching these, these videos and was reading one of these, some of these guys who were teaching people about sailing, Somebody made a comment that uh, one of the experts I was reading of, of sailing, he, he said, the anchor does dig into the ground. But what people neglect, there's a, one other uh, piece that people neglect that is very important. And that's this, next line in your notes, the anchor chain connects the boat to the anchor. 
and should be five to seven times longer than the depth of the water. So the anchor chain is connected from the boat to the anchor. It's the thing that connects the boat to the anchor. What is it that connects our life to this hope we have in Christ? What is it that connects it? It's really easy. That chain, what is the chain in the analogy? What's the chain? It's faith. Not faith in faith, faith in Jesus. That faith in Christ leads us to the salvation. You don't have an anchor without faith in Christ. These are working in tandem together. So your faith connects your life to your anchor. You with me? The deeper the water, the stronger and longer the chain must be. The deeper the water, the stronger and longer the chain must be. Why is this important? Because if God calls you, we talked about the calling last week, God gives you an assignment that you're going to go far out into the deep waters, away from the shore. You're not just going to put around in the lake. You're not just going to go down the river. You're not just going to go, you know, just a quarter mile offshore so you can fish real nice. If you're going to go to the deeper things, if God's going to lead you in your vessel away from the shore, away from safety, he's going to say, follow me out into the deep waters, your faith that connects to that hope needs to be strengthened and deepened. It needs to be strengthened and deepened. If you drop the anchor and it's 20 feet of water, your chain has to be strong enough to hold the vessel and all the resistance it's going to feel. Your faith has to be strong enough to handle the resistance you're going to feel and you will feel it. It has to be. So if you are saying, man, I really feel like God's put something in front of me. He's calling me to something that's deeper. That's going to be, it's going to be navigating further out in a, in a way that I haven't experienced before. Your faith is going to have to be deepened and strengthened. My entire message today is to get us to focus on strengthening and deepening that faith in God. There's some of us in this room who have not, are, you're like, man, I'm not going out any further. I'm in the shallow end right here, and I'm getting tossed around just right here. I can't go any further. That might be because the depth of the chain isn't as long as it should be so your anchor can properly set. Your faith needs to grow where it is before you move to where God's calling you. So it doesn't matter if you're like, I'm ready to go to the deep, Matt, or no way am I leaving this 10-foot deep water. This is the shallow end for me. I'm staying right here. I'm not going to 50 or 100 feet deep. I'm not doing that. doesn't matter where you are. That faith needs to be lengthened and strengthened. How is our faith strengthened and deepened? Next on your notes, two words, God's word. It's God's word. Why 
does God's word strengthen our faith? Why in the world is our faith deepened and strengthened in God's word? Because of the because I wrote some some of them down in your notes. You can follow along with me. Because in Scripture we see the character of the God who has promised us salvation. Because His character is impeccable. We find the stories of God's faithfulness to His children. We find the accounts of the miracles of heart transformation, like Nina was talking about earlier. We read the life and words of Jesus. We see how God, um, it should say uses, or I'm sorry, how God does eternal work through the imperfect lives of people. We're reminded that this life is temporary and believers will live in eternity with God. We are given the direction on how to live our purpose. We are reminded of the hope that we have, we, that we're anchored to. We're reminded that none of the struggles that we go through are in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, um, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Another translation says uh, that your labor is not worthless. How do you know? How do any of us know what Jesus died on? How, why, why do we know that Jesus died on the cross? Why? Somebody told you, right? Somebody told you about Christ? How did they know? Right, somebody told them. And all the way back to someone read it. They read the story of Jesus. Someone handed them a Bible. They repeated it to you. We know the story of Jesus because we have Scripture. We know the character of God because we have scripture. We know that he, can, that he can be trusted. Why? Because of scripture. That is why we got involved in this. Yes, someone told us. Yes, the spirit of God revealed it to us. But that faith in him comes ultimately, if you trace it back, because of God's word. I sat this week as I got into this, this next little part I'm gonna tell you here, and I was utterly blown away because not only did God create you, and not only did he send his son to die for you, not only did he, that, did he send his son knowing that you could reject him, not only, uh, let me use the scripture, while I was yet a sinner, Christ still died for me. Knowing very well that all, all of us could reject him, he still went ahead and paid the price on the chance that you would take him up on his offer of salvation. He still did it, loved you so much. He still rolled out the offer before you proved you were worthy. And guess what? None of us are worthy. No one loves like that. No one gives like that. Only God sets the example of love like that. And then he went another step and orchestrated a plan for you and for me to have his timeless written word in our hands. I don't know if many of you know how we have an English Bible, a Bible that you can read 
the English language in. And if you know this, then just hear it again and bear with me. But my guess is most of us don't know the story. And I want you to hear this and look at just how precise God was in orchestrating you to have his word, his truth in your hands specifically. William Tyndale's next line in your notes, uh, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E, produced and printed the first English translation of the Bible. So he was born sometime in, this, in the 1480s or 1490s. I know that you think I might have been born in the 1480s or 90s, but I was not. Thank you very much. <clears throat> but no one knows the exact date that he was born. There was not a great record-keeping system during that time. They just know he was born during that time frame. And during the time of his birth, there was great unrest, and the Roman Catholic Church had a massive stronghold on the church in England. So the Roman Catholic Church is based out of Rome. There you go. Bam, you guys are sharp, um, sharp tonight. So the Roman Catholic Church... Um, started to grow, expand their influence, and they had a massive influence on the Church of England, which is where Tyndale resided. And the church had a, had a, how can I put this politely? They had a stranglehold on Scripture. They did not allow the Bible to be written or read in any language other than Latin. Latin today is considered a dead language. No one uses it anymore. But at that point, only the priests, the Pope, the Bishop, the, the church leaders, only those guys who would be in a position like I'm sitting in were allowed to, or were taught Latin. So, and all the people in the church congregation didn't know Latin. So all you could do was believe what I said. If all you can do is believe what one guy says, what becomes the massive temptation for this guy? To lie? To bend it a little bit in my favor? To tell you how to do more things for me if I keep my eyes on a selfish endeavor and not Christ. And many of these guys in the Church of England, not all of them, but many of the guys who were, were leaders, they were connected to the government. And so they actually passed laws that made it illegal to have a Bible that was in any other language than Latin. The, the church, the more it became about these guys who... It didn't become about Jesus necessarily. It was all about what they wanted to do and about their power and about their hierarchy and, and about them building something. I'm sure none of you know anybody in ministry who's ever done that. Um, but just pretend that you might have known somebody in that or experienced somebody in, in, our, in our lifetime who's done that. This is not a church-specific problem. This is a humanity problem. I didn't know that as a young man. I wish I would have. 
It's not a church-specific problem. This is the heart of man is corrupt, whether he professes Christ or atheism or anywhere in between. The heart of man is corrupt. He's going to do corrupt things. And here you have these bishops and these priests and these popes who are actually uh, actually benefiting and profiting off of the backs of all of the people because the people are only doing what they're told. They don't have the Bible in English for them to read. They don't read Latin. So all I can do is believe this guy and hope he's telling me the truth. And the longer and longer that system went on, the more and more corrupt it became. Some of the... um, there, there's three popes that were alive during Tyndall's lifetime. And I'll just quickly tell you about three, the, the, those three. The pope would choose a name of someone he wanted to honor before him. So the, the guy who's the pope right now, Pope Francis, his name's not Francis. He picked Francis as someone to, as someone he wanted to emulate or he wanted to be connected with and recognized with. So... This guy, the first one, is named Sixtus the Fourth. That's weird, right? Like, I'm I'm six four. <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, fourteen seventy one to fourteen eighty four. This pope establishes houses of prostitution in Rome. That question of like, wait, what? That just ran through your mind? Yes. Why? Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. And leaders who can't be questioned wind up doing questionable things. And these guys centralized the power and you could not challenge them because you had no idea what the word of God said. This next guy, I think this is pretty funny. Um, his name was Innocent the Eighth, Pope Innocent the Eighth. He his uh, papacy ran from 1484 to 1492, and he had seven illegitimate children. The innocent guy had seven illegitimate children. It's funny to me. Whom he enriched from the church's treasures. So let me tell you. He had seven kids outside of wedlock and paid for them to be taken care of out of the church offering. William Kerr is the author of a book called A Handback, uh, Handbook on the Papacy. And he, um, this last one, I, I put a quote in here from him, Alexander the Sixth. his term was 1492 to 1503. And the next line in your notes is he lived with a Spanish lady and her daughter, and reveled in the grossest forms of debauchery. Listen to what he says. The accounts of some of the indecencies that took place in the presence of the Pope and his daughter, Luciza, are too bestial for repetition. The guy who did the research and writing would not go into describing how terrible the indecencies were that this guy participated in because he felt it was improper to put them in print. These were the Pope leaders. Now, for just give me one second right here. 
You could be like, the Catholic Church is terrible. Well, okay. The goal is not to look at you and say, the Catholic Church is terrible, because I know some Catholic people and some uh, interacted with some priests who are God-honoring, God-loving people. Any leadership that focuses on what I want over what God wants will try to manipulate it to get what I want. And during Tyndall's time, this is how it was. The Church of England controlled the church members from cradle to the grave. What if your child dies and you needed to go to heaven? Well, he needs to be baptized in the church as an infant. You got to stay staunchly loyal to the Church of England because the state now had the church. They implemented a statewide church. He had to have ultimate dedication to the Church of England, and they even controlled people after they died because they created the idea of purgatory. And if you want your loved one to be out of the waiting room and get into heaven, you got to give an offering. And I'll sense when it's enough and tell you, okay, I prayed and let him out. All of this was not a fun time in the church's history. And I would say in the Church of England's history, because it would be something they really, really pressured on. But Tyndall, next on your notes, had a conviction from God to translate the Bible into English for the people. He spent most of his adult life running and hiding from the Catholic Church who sent people out to kill him. He didn't make a bad mob deal. He didn't like run up a tab on a bookie and then skip town. He didn't rack up a a laundry list of felonies and then bolt. He didn't mess with the wrong people and they come after him. No, the Church of England hired people to chase this man out of England and throughout Europe where he got help in translating the New Testament. He didn't, he wasn't even focused on the whole Bible at first. He just did the New Testament. And when it was, uh, and by the grace of God, Tyndall escaped numerous times and he finished his translation work and began printing the English translation of the Bible. Next on your notes, the English Bibles quickly made their way to England, but it was illegal to own one. But I want you to hear me. Even though it was illegal to own one, people so desired the word of God that they risked being imprisoned and convicted of heresy against the king and the church of England to have it in their own possession. Tyndall was eventually set up by a friend of his, well, I should, a friend in quotes, I should say, or the people who were after him have been hired to find him, bribed one of his friends for a bunch of silver. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Bribed him for silver and 
he actually went to Tyndall. Talk about rubbing salt in the wound. Tyndall's friend went to him and borrowed some money and said, I'll pay it back, knowing that the next day he was going to be uh, arrested so he wouldn't have to pay it back. So he doubled up on his money. Just grimy, dirty. He went and went to his house and said, hey, let's go out to dinner. Let's go somewhere and have dinner together. And when they did that, he told the people who were looking for Tyndall where he would be, and they captured him, imprisoned him. He sat there and went through their trial process, and he was eventually convicted. He was convicted of heresy, and the punishment for heresy was death. But they caught him too late. Do you think that was an accident? Or is that God divinely protecting him so that you and me could hold his word. On the morning of October 6, 1536, Tyndall was tied to a stake, strangled, and his body was burned after he was strangled to death. They did it in front of everyone in the town outside of the the castle that he was imprisoned in because they wanted to make an example of him. This is what happens when you cross the the Church of England. This is what happens when you cross the official religion of England. This is what happens when you try to put the word of God into people's hands in their own language. This is what happened. And they tried to brand him as a heretic on the day of his death. But what they did was they solidified him as a martyr. You'll actually look at on the outside of a physical copy of your Bible. Many of them, you'll on the binder, it may say Tyndale printing as a nod and an homage to the one who did the work to make sure you had God's word. There was a few other people that were involved in his translation of the Bible and the King James Version, which is the 1611 version that's quote-unquote the authorized version, 75%, I heard a scholar this week say 75% of the 1611 Bible is a direct copy from Tyndale's work. Three-fourths of the Bible you have in your hand is the direct words he translated when he was hiding when he was running through the rain, the heat, the cold, looking for another place to sleep, trying to figure out who he could trust. You wanna talk about tension and anxiety and somebody living on the run, this man did that out of a conviction and obedience of God and in doing so is the reason you hold that book today. One of the leaders of the Church of England was asked, why is he against church members having a copy of Scripture? And he said it was like, it was like taking the pearl of the gospel that was invaluable and throwing it under the feet of swine. People so wanted control of others 
they would lie and use whatever means they could. And in doing so, their heart about everyone else was revealed. And this man gave his life for God's word. He gave his life so that you could read about God's character and his goodness today. Make no mistake that what you hold in your hands from that Bible is the direct result of an obedient, dedicated, faithful, hardworking, intelligent man who gave everything he had to God. And how did it end for him? Strangled. You know what the last thing he said before he died was? I pray that the heart of the king of England would be open. Not why did you do this? I didn't do anything wrong. This is for the people. Freedom, you know, wasn't any of that. I pray that the heart of the king of England would be open. And no one knows if the king of England during that time converted to Christianity. But what history does tell us is that he reversed the law, printed those Bibles, and it was said that almost every household in England had a Bible in English printed and in their home. God gave us a way, it's last on your notes, to receive salvation through faith in Christ and orchestrated a plan to preserve his word for us. After I read the story and I looked at that scripture and I just thought about the gravity of the moment of how many other things in my life has God orchestrated for me. How can I walk by my bedside where my Bible sits and not crack that thing open for days and not feel like an arrogant, spoiled little brat? I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. How can I look at the life of Tyndale and the blood and sweat that he poured out? How can I look at God who orchestrated everything that we know is in his word in a way that I can understand it? So to not be manipulated any longer, but to have direct access to God's word. How can I look at that and not go, what a precious, invaluable, priceless gift I have been given? I already got it through Jesus. I hit the jackpot. And then on top of it, he goes, let me just double it for you. It's like winning a billion dollar lottery with Jesus. And then at the end of it, God says, I'm going to stack a couple extra hundred million on there for you. Just to show you how much I want you. Just to show you how much I love you. Just to show you how to deepen and strengthen your faith. To deepen and strengthen your anchor chain. There was an old um, minister who, 
he walked up on a, I think he was actually in England, he walked up on a pulpit of a church and he was so overcome with conviction in his own life and the condition of the church around him, he stood up and said, we don't love God. Not a like big funny one-liner to start off a message, we don't love God. But for 45 minutes, he sat there in front of the people and he could only repeat those words over and over. We don't love God. We don't love God. He just sat there and said it over and over again. And the reality of what he was saying hit the people in the congregation. They ran and fell at an altar, rededicated their life to him. And after looking at the life of Tyndale and looking about how lax I am as a pastor with God's word, I thought, do I really love God's word? How flippantly I just walk casually past it and be like, I'll read tomorrow. My study time for Sunday is Thursday, so. I'll catch up then. I sat in the darkness of my own home last night trying to walk back through this message and the Lord said, nah, you're not going to go walk back to the message. Me and you need to come to an understanding. And the conviction of my own heart rang true as I sat on my couch in the dark last night and thought, I have to value his word. have to, not because of the job that I've been given, not because of the assignment that God's given me or Nina or anyone who will ever sit behind this microphone. No, it's because my faith has to be strengthened and deepened just as like anybody else. We have a saying around here, there's no superheroes in, the room, in, the, in this room, especially not the guy who sits behind this mic. And as a man who's pursuing God, who calls himself a disciple. There has to be a heavy commitment in my own heart to God's word. This message is not a confessional for me to be like, hey guys, nope. My guess is that the Lord would put this on my heart because there's people in this room who need to become reacquainted with God's word. Maybe you never knew the story of how you got it. It just was always there. You, you know, you're a kid and you went to church and somebody gave you a Bible. You had a cartoon Bible, a comic book Bible, a children's Bible, a Bible written in, you know, everyday language and nine different translations. And you're all sitting on your desk and just always kind of been around and you never really thought about what did it take for that to be sitting on that shelf. And I heard this a long time ago and knew it, but to be reminded of it, God used it as a deeper level of conviction for me. I'm not gonna put you in a position to sign up for something or anything like that because I don't know that that works. 
But if you were given notes today, on the back end, there's a, pa- a piece of paper that just goes day one to 90. And believe it or not, if you'd read three chapters a day, just three, like 60, 70 verses total, depending on what you get in the day, you would read the entire New Testament, all of Tyndall's work before Thanksgiving. Wait, what? I can make it through all that in 90 days? Yep, even Revelation. You may be like, Revelation makes me nervous. I don't understand all the metaphors and things in it. Fine, stop at Jude. I would encourage you to go all the way through, but just stop at Jude. And I wonder if we would take the next 85, 90 days you could knock it out in 20 minutes. I'm almost, I'm almost positive of it. And just went back. And not honored the life of Tyndall. No. Honor the God who put a, pan, a plan in place and called a man. Called people to translate his word. and reinvest in scripture. If you listen here, take notes here, we're all happy with that. We want you to do that. But if this is the only place where you're ingesting his word, your anchor chain is not strengthening or deepening. Maybe a link or here or there. Last thing I'll say before we pray today is I heard a a man give a great description this week. He said, you know, we call our time with the Lord devotion. I want to go have my devotion. I pray, I read God's word, I sit and listen, I worship. Devotion often starts with discipline. It's like when you go to work out and you're in the gym every day or every other day and you got your rhythm going and then you miss one of those days. You're like, oh man, I don't, I miss it. I need to go. I know I got something going on, but just give me 30 minutes. I got to run to the gym or go outside and do something. Comes a devotion after discipline. My guess is if you would take what I'm laying before you and what I feel like the spirit of God has kind of put on my heart to communicate to all of us in this room, to reprioritize God's word. Take the time to read it to absorb it, to think about it every day, 90 days before Thanksgiving. You get through the entire New Testament and be reminded about the character of the God you serve, the stories of his faithfulness. Because if you're praying for something like Nina talked about earlier, there's something in your heart that you're dealing with, I don't even know how this works half the time, but you go back to God's word and the spirit uses that eternal inspired book to answer some of the deepest questions and settle, can heal some of the deepest wounds and settle some of the most confusing moments that you'll ever face in life. Do we really love God's word? Because it is 
key to the depth and strength of our faith.